Cole, and this is my wife, Lindsay. We are reading Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look, sorry, you look not only on his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have the mind, um, have the mind among yourselves, which is your, yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to be, become, uh, sorry, <laughs> And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming human form. He humbled himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, uh, just thank you for this time of, of uh, worship and, and um, just reflection of you, Lord. Um, be with us today, and, and uh, uh, thank you for sending your son to um, show us what it looks like to be a servant and, and to uh, make less of us and, and make more of you. Um, Lord, uh, show us how to and, and uh, help us become more like your son every day. Uh, be with Lance as he leads us in um, his preaching and uh, give us uh, eyes to see, e ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Thank you. Amen. Thank you all very much. Appreciate you guys reading and praying. Oh, man, what a privilege it is to be in Philippians chapter 2. Um, if I had to ask you a question about which virtue is kind of the chief ultimate virtue of Jesus, what would you say? Probably some of us would say love, right? Um, what about Christians? What's the chief ultimate virtue of what a Christian life uh, should be about? Again, most of us would, would dig into some sort of definition of love, and yet we have to, um, if we're thinking about what the scriptures call us to, we have to further clarify the kind of love with which Jesus loved us. And I would say that, that underlying, the underlying current of the action of love was humility. Not just any kind of love, not a self-serving love, certainly not a transactional love, because if it's transactional, which we're all in transactional relationships, we all usually have a job. Um, if not, like we're in some sort of like give and take uh, relationship with like AT&T for your cable provider. I'm going to do this, and then they'll do this. It's transactional. Um, like that's not the way in which Jesus loves us. It's not transactional. How do I know that? He gained nothing <laughs> when he loved us. And as he loves us, uh, he lacks nothing and therefore he gains nothing. And so it's not transactional for him. Therefore, it cannot be rooted in his self. And so there is a deep undercurrent of humility with which God uh, sent his son, uh, became human flesh and served us just as we just read. And so in a world that has become more and more hostile, have you, have you sensed the world becoming more hostile? 
I have. You can see it all online. You can see it even amongst friendships. There's not as much patience and forbearance that we have that we used to have even just a decade ago. But as the world has become more hostile, um, where we post what we think and just give people whatever it is that our opinion is, Paul is going to give us a crash course on Humility 101. That's ultimately where I'm headed today is this idea of humility 101. What does it look like to be humble? Uh, What does it look like to live a humble life? And of course, Paul is going to lay this out for us on the what, the how, and the why of humility. But before we get there, we first have to ask the question, well, what's humility? Like we talk about it, but do we have an understanding of what humility is? I certainly don't. You're sitting there going, okay, this guy's going to teach us about humility. Yeah, I am charged with that task. Uh, And that's going to be a lot of fun. But here we are. We have to define humility. And um, if it's me, I'm going to go through people uh, to people that are that are more humble than I am, that are more seasoned than I am. Usually, the older saints are more more humble than the younger saints. And so, this guy by the name of John Piper, who is uh, a retired pastor, but he he laid out humility for us with these words. Kind of a fascinating definition. Let's see if we can pick up some themes. Humility, he says, is the disposition of our heart to be pleased with the infinite superiority of Christ over ourselves in every way. I'm just going to read that one more time because it's John Piper. You have to read it three times for you to get it. The disposition of our heart to be pleased with the infinite superiority of Christ over ourselves and every so this idea of, of Jesus is superior and I find joy in his superiority over me. And he goes on to say, and then it's the heart's gladness that Jesus is infinitely greater than we are, mingled with the gladness of his greatness, mingled with the groaning that self-exaltation still competes for our affection. Humility isn't just acknowledging the superiority of Christ. It is a daily wrestling with the superiority of Christ and my heart's desire to still be on the throne of my own heart and rejoicing. So we see in this definition what we see throughout the scriptures, and that there's there's this interchange between humility and joy. Humility and joy, and I hope that you can see it throughout our text this morning and at our time this morning. Uh, So look, we have to kind of pick up on the context, right? Last week, uh, Josue preached on a a life worthy of the gospel, and that's really the context that that Paul continues in here in Philippians 2. So Philippians 1.27 says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Hear it now. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You remember the visual from last week with Alan up here and Josue up here? Side by side, united together for one purpose, and that is a life worthy of the gospel. If you remember, Paul didn't have a major theological problem with the church at Philippi. But what we're starting to pick up is that although there's no theological critique here of this church, there is a major crack in their foundation that if they don't identify it and fix it, it will bring the whole house down. What is that crack in that foundation? It's disunity. It's strife. It's envy. 
It's rivalry. My version of the ESV, we found out in staff this week, apparently is different than everybody else's. So when it talks about, it says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition, which is what most ESVs talk about. Mine talks about rivalry. It's the same word back in 115 through 17 where Paul is saying, hey, look, there's those out there that preach Christ out of selfish ambition, out of rivalry. They do it out of pretense. They do it out of competition. And though it's not great, I rejoice for one fact and one fact alone, and that is Christ is preached. Now, we might think to ourselves, well, I mean, it's just rivalry. It's just selfish ambition Take note of Galatians 5, where rivalry and selfish ambition are acts of the sinful nature or the flesh. Selfishness is still a sin. Like, I know that that's um, maybe not something that you think of. You might go, oh, I just struggle with selfishness. Actually, it's just a struggle with sin. It's the same thing that we've struggled with for all of time. Uh, but here we are, right? This is, this is the context. And now, here we go. Like, this is the crack of disunity from selfishness. There's no humility, there's competition, there's factions based on personality. You see Paul now in prison, and these other teachers have come through, and they say, well, you know your boy Paul is in prison. You should come to my church. My church, man, it's like, it's, it's off a chain. Like, the smoke machines are legit. Sorry, that was just a little dig at my friend down the road where we mess with each other about smoke machines. He says we don't have any Holy Spirit because we don't have any, holy, any smoke machines, and I say, I got to come and get one. He says, I'll give you one, bro. Finally, still have yet to get it though, so it's been years now. But nonetheless, here we are, right? We have to understand that disunity and selfishness and humility has been a part of every church, us too. And so here we go, Philippians 2, chapters one, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and note the assumptive language here that Paul uses. And if, if you don't mind, some, some passages are better to be preached where you can just kind of, you can, you, can, you can just go a little bit. And some passages are just better to be teached. Teached? Taught. <laughs> I have a master's degree. <laughs> teached. Anyways, Philippians 2. We're going to teach a little bit rather than preach. Here we go. Philippians 2, chapter 1. Ch- sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here we go. So there is, if there is any encouragement, if there is any encouragement, note the assumptive language. Any, if there's any encouragement, if there's any comfort in love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy for now Paul's situation, and of course he is saying, and there is. Of course there's, there's, there's encouragement in Christ. Of course, there's comfort from love. Of course, there's been this fellowship in the spirit. Of course, you guys have sympathy for my situation in prison. It's been noted due to your generosity. Of course, there is. And now, because there is, it continues on, and he says in in, uh, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. You see, there is an assumptive language here that he builds upon to say, complete my joy. My joy is not what it could be because you guys keep fighting over silly things. If you look at the end of the book of Philippians, he actually calls out two women for all of eternity. It's really a fascinating thing. We'll get there. That Paul is not so concerned about discretion. He calls out people all throughout his letters by name. Where we get to heaven and we're going, yeah, I've read about you. This is amazing. It's good to see you. You guys got over it. Perfect. 
Like it's a fascinating reality, right? But now he's saying, complete my joy. My joy is lacking because you are, you, the church in Philippi is not of the same mind. It's not united. There's something off here. And if we, if we understand something, uh, we have to understand a couple of things that when we think about disunity. Number one, there is great damage in any church when it's, it's not unified. And it, 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 it sucks the joy out of the leadership. I can tell you, I can tell you based on personal experience, when we are experiencing seasons of conflict, it's, it's less fun than now. And, and Paul experiences this. You, you, my joy is lacking because you guys are not getting along. But the second thing he says is that your mindset is off. It's in your mind. There's something in your thinking that you've convinced yourself to unite yourself around. You've convinced yourself is right, and therefore other people are wrong, and it's enough to create factions. Your mindset is off. You cannot live, Paul will go on to say, you cannot live a life worthy of the gospel in one spirit, side by side, with a citizenship in heaven without the same mind, without experiencing the same kind of love without living in full accord with others. And we cannot do it. And so as we get to this, and we now turn the page into these, these, the what and the how and the why of humility, the first thing I want to help us understand, and I think Paul helps us understand, is what is the what of humility? And it's right here in verses 3 and 4. In other words, what's the command here? What are we supposed to do what does it look like to live humble lives? This part, this part of here doesn't demand a lot of explanation, so I want to read it. I'll explain a bit, but I want to read it. Look at what it says. Verse 3. Do, not, do nothing. Y'all hearing this? Do nothing from rivalry, I think yours says selfish ambition, or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, commands help us understand the sins, like the corresponding sins of the original audience. So you can see that they're struggling with selfishness. You can see that they're struggling with what the Bible uh, says is vain glory, that is empty significance, self significance, self-importance. They're, they're dealing with this because Paul commands against it. He wouldn't command against it if they weren't struggling with it. And so you see these things happening in the church of Philippi, that they're struggling with rivalry. Again, it's the same word that he used in the previous chapter, right? That to describe those who teach from envy, not sincerely, in pretense. They're, they aren't heretics, but it's still damaging. So the way that I struggle with this, just to be really candid, are you ready for the candid part of, of our sermon? Um, I have two parts, but the candid part of this for me is um, we have like car stickers for the Grove that we don't really hand out anymore because I've embarrassed myself enough to know that if I'm the pastor and I embarrass myself, you're probably going to do the same thing. So let's just not put those on so that somebody can post on Facebook and Pecan Grove neighborhood page like, that Grove Church, tell you what, they're full of heathens. And I go, yes, exactly, you're welcome too, but they don't, I can't do that. Uh, but I do think about this with like hats and with shirts and I've, for as long as we've ever been a church, I've always struggled with the printing of hats and shirts. Did you know that about me? I wear them almost every day. They're super comfortable and I love them. But I, I struggle with wearing them 
Because I, I struggle with my fleshy desire to wear them for the wrong reason. Not to kind of be like, oh, this is a comfortable shirt, and not to say, hey, these are some important things that I care about, and these are people that I belong to. Sometimes I wear it, or I used to wear it, because I think we're better than everybody else. Anybody else do that? Don't raise your hand. That would be embarrassing. Then it's like two of us. We don't need that. But sometimes I wear those shirts because, or I used to, be like, man, because we, we got it right. Oh, help us. Oh, help us. Because the implication is you didn't. Rivalry. Selfish ambition. Vain conceit. Empty significance. There are days where I'm just like, man, I don't know if I can wear that. And then I put it on if it's around the house because I'll just be self-important with no one around. Selfish ambition looks a little bit like that. You can wear the shirt. You can put the sticker on your car if you like, but make sure you, you know, don't cut people off and whatnot. Um, or you know, tell them who's most important with your one finger. That would also be bad. And so if you are, are going to just step out of uh, uh, this idea of living for yourself, then by all means, represent Jesus. Don't represent a local church. Represent Jesus. And if it means wearing the shirt, awesome. But also what this means is that we are, are, are a society that is building itself up with an importance of tribalism. Tribalism. Tribalism is this idea is that you found your people, and it's like five, six, ten people, usually no more than that. You've got this tribe of people, and you hang out with this tribe of people. And the thing about tribalism, and it's a little bit like a wolf pack, like you start to defend it, and you start to defend this crew if anybody breaks in on it, and Paul is speaking against this idea of using any sort of local camaraderie, CrossFit, uh, a certain diet like keto, um, uh, like that's not the only one. There's plenty of them out there, right? You pick one, and they're excited about it. Um, a political party, a denomination, this is where I might get myself in trouble, an ethnicity, whether it be white or black or Hispanic or Asian or a mix. Nothing is as important as being found in Christ. Nothing is as important as the tribe of the church. There's nothing that should be at the center of the thing that we're united around because you can't do be united around the gospel and also be united around other things. Because at some point, there's going to be a competing allegiance there that, that, that God is going to call us to go, okay, well, I'm either going to serve Christ or I'm going to serve this thing or this tribe, whomever it may be. And so God is calling all that out. And if you look here at the, the, the kind of the nuts and bolts of humility, humility is rooted in otherness. Do nothing out of rivalry, but in humility, count others. You have to count them. You have to count them others as more significant uh, than yourself. You have to let it, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, selfishness will keep you from the kind of joyful living which is full. It's rooted in humility. There's a guy by the name of Bernard Rimland. He was the director of Child Behavior Institute years ago, and he did a study called the Altruistic Paradox. Go look that word up later. I don't know which one it is that you need to look up, altruistic or paradox, but go look it up. A study on happy people, and he said this, he found this, that based, uh, excuse me, that he found that of all the people labeled happy, they were also labeled unselfish. 
he wrote this, and I'm quoting now, whose activities, these people that are happy and unselfish, they are the act, those that, who has activities are devoted to bringing themselves happiness are far less likely to be happy than those whose efforts are devoted to making others happy. In other words, it's the golden rule, isn't it? And he goes on to quote the golden rule. You see, Jesus would say this, that in John 15, 11 through 12, and even go on to 13, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Look at this. My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How, Jesus? How will you give me your joy? This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Joy is rooted in otherness. It is rooted in humbly loving other people well. So what is the what of humility is doing nothing out of rivalry. I don't know about you. I struggle with this. I, nothing out of empty importance, self-importance, but in humility, counting others as more significant than yourself. Can I just sit on us for a moment? Let me just invite you to think a little bit about this because I don't know that I need to explain more about it, but I do think that the next time you're faced with a small decision to serve another person, we can either grumble, we can either grumble at our own selfishness, we can grumble at their ask of us, or we can serve them. We can hear the still, small voice of the Spirit saying to us, do nothing, remember nothing out of selfish ambition or vainglory. For me, this is the other candid part. For me, I've been uh, trying to read the Old Testament in six months, and I'm way behind. Um, aren't you in your reading plan, or is it just me? Um, so way behind, we're way behind. But I did read this in the last couple of weeks, and I just, it's been sitting on me. Proverbs 3, 27. I don't think this is coming up on the screen. Maybe it is. But it says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. When I read that passage, and I think, I mean, all the times that I've not done something for someone whom I knew I could have done something, ouch, vainglory, selfish ambition, rivalry. This is the what of humility, the how of humility Paul is going to paint beautifully. If you need a picture of what this looks like, Paul is going to paint a masterpiece in Philippians 2 uh, in, in the middle part of this chapter. And he's going to paint a Rembrandt. He's going to paint uh, uh, not a Picasso because you don't know what Picasso is actually uh, painting. I don't. Um, and so you could just make anything out of that. But it's like it's a Rembrandt. It's a Surratt. It's not a Jackson Pollock because that's just I can do that myself. I can't do this. If you don't know anything about these art, uh, artists, I do apologize. But nonetheless, like it's a masterpiece. So how is it that we're supposed to live this way? Here's my thing. When I think about Proverbs 3, when I think about do nothing out of selfish ambition, I think this is impossible. Isn't it impossible to live in humility? It's impossible for me. I would say if you don't think this is impossible, you're probably not looking at yourself with an accurate lens or the call here of doing nothing. It is a trap, though, to think, well, the way to become more humble is to pursue humility. You know what will happen if you pursue humility? You'll become prideful. Isn't that crazy? Tim Keller says this. This is not coming up. This is a quick. It says, humility is so shy, 
if you big, begin talking about it, it leaves. You cannot pursue humility for humility's sake. You could become the best servant the Grove has ever seen, the best volunteer we've ever experienced. You could serve in the toddlers. You could come up early and do road crew. You can stay late and do road crew. That's still a thing. You could go and deliver meals uh, to families that just had a baby. I mean, you, you name You could be the best missionary you could be. And if you're doing it to become more humble, it leaves. Instead, how do we become more humble. Paul is going to tell us we feast on Jesus. I'm going to give you three easy steps to improve your, your life of humility. Are you ready? Number one, feast on Jesus. We look at him. We fix our pursuit of humility when we pursue Jesus himself. Verses six and seven. I got to run here. I didn't realize how, what time it was. I'm sorry. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's five, six. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul's ultimate expression and invitation to humility is to begin to feast on looking at Jesus. This word here for form we have a bad English translation of a really deep and beautiful Greek word. Form makes it look like the outward appearance. And so there's been cults and sects which have said, like, man, that Jesus actually wasn't still God when he became human. Because he just looked like it. He just took on the form of a servant. He just had the form of God. It's not what the Greek says. The Greek word is morphe, and it means essence. The very essence that made up the Father, the very characteristics that made God, whatever characteristics those are, whether we understand them or not, or can articulate them or not, whatever characteristics they are, that essence, that morphe, the same in Jesus. And so Paul is very clear when he's painting with these strokes that Jesus is God, was God in the flesh. And as God in the flesh, he so represented the Father that he also took on the essence, the form, the morphe of a servant. God, all of eternity, Jesus. See how high he is. Paul wants you to see how high he was for all of eternity. He wasn't just created. He was never created. He was there in the beginning from which all things were created. And that creator God became so low. He stooped so low to serve you and to serve me. He became a servant. What kind of God is our God? Is he a grasping God, an insecure God, a God who has to, who has to cling on to the things that the, his rights, his divine rights? No, no. The Bible says very clearly he, he did not um, keep those things. He did not grasp those things. The equality with God, he did not grasp, but he made himself nothing. He did not seize it violently as in a robbery, which is what that word talks about, grasping. No, he denied himself divine access to divine power and privilege when he became a servant. So friends, how do we become more humble? Step one, feast on Jesus, because here's the deal. We can either grasp at position we can either grasp at excuses. We can either grasp at, at some sort of self-justification and we can grumble in disobedience or we can be released as we release 
And we can rejoice as God rejoices in the life that Jesus lived, which is one that freely gives, becoming and emptying themselves for the sake of others. That's step one on how to become uh, humble. uh, Step two is to become obedient. Look at verse 8, right? Jesus personified humility in one glaring way. Verse 8, and being found in human form, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient. And there was a moment just this morning with with someone in our church where she's telling her son to do something and she's like, look, you can suffer, suffer in disobedience or you can be obedient and everything will be all right. It's really your choice. But it's going to boil down to obedience and disobedience. Whether we're going to rejoice or not, whether we're going to have humility or not, the Christian life is this. We will either gladly submit to Jesus and pursue obedience and humility, or we will stand against him in prideful disobedience. And there are warnings all over the scriptures on this one. I'll just point out to Proverbs 15, 25 says this, the Lord tears down the house of the proud. Are y'all hearing this? He doesn't just be like, hey guys, I know you're a little prideful in there. If you guys could just not be as prideful, that'd be great. He will tear it down. And what does he do for those that are humble like a widow? Oh, he maintains her boundaries. He cares for her. The New Testament echoes in this. Jesus' half-brother James says this in James 4, 6, and 7. He says he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, when you're trying to live this life of obedience to him, that God opposes the proud. Friends, if we are living with selfish ambition and vain conceit, God opposes you. He opposes me. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Again, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves. Obey him. Pursue obedience. It's rooted in pride when we disobey. See, Jesus could serve others because he knew striving for for first place was already taken. He didn't need first place. It goes back to that that definition with Piper that I'm, I'm also groaning because my heart continues to want first place. And then finally, as far as how to become more humble, it's not just feast on Jesus. It's not just become obedient. It's also quit making excuses. I say that with a smile because I know it's hard. We've got to quit making excuses. If you look at the end of verse 8, right? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. There was no excuse for Jesus to be like, well, I mean, on the cross? Surely I don't deserve that. Of course he didn't. That was hardly the point. And so the mind that we are to have is that what we saw in Christ Jesus, it says it in verse 5, have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ. There is no excuse. He's already given you this mindset. You've seen it, and now it's yours. So what is our excuse? Well, I love the culture of self-care. I love the culture of self-care, I, 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 truly. But when we use things like Sabbath, when we use things like rest, when we use, well, I got to take care of myself as a means of selfishness, we're in trouble, friends. 
but now we're having a hard time discerning what is good and God-given to what is good and God-given and what we're twisting around for our own benefit in a fleshy, sinful kind of way. I can't tell you if you're doing that or not. I can only invite you into thinking about that and praying about that and discerning about that. Perhaps you have uh, repeated some of these mantras in your head about not considering other people of, uh, over yourself that, well, I've done my time in the nursery. It's time for somebody else. We've got a lot of young people in here. We've got some seasoned saints too. I've done my time on the road crew. I did that for five years. We're in year eight, bro. I ain't doing it anymore. Are we seeking self-care in a very healthy and good way? We're, be, we're, we're all about that. Or are we self-seeking for our own selfishness? I'm not called to pipe and drape. It's not my spiritual gift. I know, me either. It's not listed in there. It's great. I'm an introvert. I don't know if you know this, but I can't share the gospel. I'm an introvert. Yeah, yeah. No, you're not. You're fine. Do the work of an evangelist. That's what the Bible says to introverts and extroverts. And all the introverts went inward. What about those that hurt me? What about my family? What about those that have done me wrong? Do I need to serve those too? Yep. Jesus served those that killed him. Well, they might take advantage of me if, I, if they need a car, and I have a car to be able to, to, to give. Yeah, yeah, they're going to take advantage of you. They took advantage of Jesus. Well, this might not work out the way that I'd hoped. Yeah, it's not the point. The point is following Jesus. And so, even if it means your social, your professional, or your actual death, y'all friends, we follow Jesus. Because we may feel the fear of those that can kill the body, but we shall not fear them for Jesus, the one that could kill the soul but chooses not to. He's the one that he calls us to ultimately defer to in all of life. All right, so now... The what of humility, the how of humility, now the why of humility. Look at verses 9 through 11. We're almost done, y'all. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at what he's saying now. Every single name falls underneath the name of Jesus. That's my name. That's your name. And in the context of why this was so controversial, it also meant the name of Caesar. It also meant the name of government. It also meant the name of anyone else. Anyone. Everyone is subject to King Jesus for all Time. You see, you can't take your eyes off of Jesus when he's just obedient to the point of death on a cross. Keep looking at the story because the Father, it says in this passage, highly exalts the Son. The word here is hyper-exaltation. It's not enough just to, just to exalt him. Hyper-exaltation above every name. Every name of any nation, every name of any ruler for all time. And there's been some crazy rulers in the history of the world. Probably be some more in our future. Every name is subject to his name. Every name. 
The enjoyment, again, I go back to this, that this whole idea of humility and joy and submission, all doing a dance with one another. I go back to that when I say the enjoyment of your life in Christ, friends, the enjoyment of your life in Christ is ultimately going to hinge on whether or not you rejoice over the fact that God rules above your name. He rules above your circumstances. They're there because he wants you to be there. You're in the station of life. You're in your position because God actually wants you to be there. It's not an accident. It's not luck. It's not fate. It's God's divine appointment and opportunity for you to submit to him and humbly serve others. In your neighborhood group, in your growth group, in your marriage, with those kids, and you as their parent, as though you may feel ill-equipped, God has called you. In your job, whatever circumstance you can think of, God's divine assignment to exercise humility and trust in our King who orchestrates and organizes all things, even to the point of death on a cross. Every name, He's above every name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus just isn't my homeboy or my savior, he is Lord, master. Now, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament here, so we have to understand this, because this is like, if you're taking notes, you're a note kind of person, this would be a thing where I would take a note. Isaiah 45, 22 and 23 says this, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Listen now. By myself I have sworn. You ever want to know why he does that? Why does he swear by himself? There's no one higher than him to swear by. I swear by myself, God says. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness and a word that shall not return. Look at what he says. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall shall swear allegiance. Well, that sounds familiar. Exactly what Paul is saying. And although the Old Testament saints would have seen that as Yahweh, as the Father, Paul is saying, it's Jesus. It's Jesus in the Old Testament too. Every tongue for all time, every knee, every name, every demon, every devil, every demagogue, the selfish and the selfless, the sinful and the saint will say it with their mouths. Jesus is Lord in this life or the life to come. It is a non-negotiable. I remember when I first explained this to an old growth group of mine long ago. I said, look, we all got a throne in our hearts, and you can either sit on it and pretend that Jesus doesn't exist, or you can yield the throne and have him sit there. If you do the first, and you sit on it, and you act like he's not there, he will come and kick it out from underneath you at one point or the other. And I remember explaining that to someone, to a group of men, and this guy ended up leaving. He's like, he would never do that to me. It's his throne. What do you mean he's not going to do it to you? He, he reigns. Yes, in this life or the next, we will bow. We will confess. He's the name above every name. Let's not be offended at what that might mean for us. Let us humbly submit on what it means for him. Let us fall in line in a beautiful, worshipful way. 
So why would a Christian intentionally become weak in a world that is grasping for power? Why would Jesus' followers intentionally become meek in a world of pride? Why is the mark of a Christian humility and not hubris? After all, we have been chosen and brought in to the family of the God of all things. That should be, like, that's something special. Because we didn't earn it. Because God so saw it fit to bring you in by his grace. There's nothing that you did to sit at this table. No, Jesus purchased you. He came low, and if we're watching, we find the why of humility that when he became low, when he obeyed, even to the point of death on a cross, which would have been a curse for him, the Father sees that kind of life, and what does he do? Hyper exalts Jesus above everything and everyone. And he looks at you in the same way. And the invitation is there for you in the same way. We will not be exalted above any other name, but we're grafted in. We're grafted into that family that is above every name, that Christian family, that family from Nazareth. We're grafted into that beautiful family. We're at, we have a seat at that table with our big bro Jesus serving us and loving us just as he did with his disciples. Why would we do this? Because God honors such a life. And that's true. God honors our life when we've laid down for the life of others. Jesus represented the Father in this way, and so do we have the opportunity to represent him in a proud and grasping and clinging world. What would a church look like? What would the church look like if we took this command and these examples seriously? How would we stand out in a culture that is taking selfies at a rapid pace? How would we stand out in a culture that's constantly saying no to everything because I got some things? How could we stand out in this world? You see, not everyone will see Jesus as easily or as readily as maybe you have. Instead, you know who they're going to look at to show them the kind of God that they serve? They're looking at you. They're looking at you to see if, if this Jesus has made any difference in your life, if your baptism waters were actual true, where you died to the old life and now raised to walk in the newness of life. They're looking and watching you. So the gravity should be there. Lives are at stake, and we have an excellent opportunity with the greatest model to have ever shown us the way in Jesus. So friends, may we personally personify a humble Messiah, a God who used, remember, look, look at what he does with humble people. He used mute Moses. He used forgotten, heart-playing Aaron boy David. That's what he was. Just running an errand at the battlefield. Oh, my brothers are hungry. I'll go give them some food. What's that? Is a crazy Philistine shouting crazy things at the Lord? I'll take him on. God uses him, a humble boy, who hears the tax collector in the temple but ignores the prideful Pharisee. May we swim against the tide of our culture, which has become more rude, more self-seeking, and more vain by the minute. May we personify the things that made Jesus so amazing in humility, submitting to his Father 
in loving his neighbor. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for sustaining my voice. Thanks for the grand invitation. Any message on humility, Lord, kind of feels like somebody's force-feeding vegetables down our throat like we're three again. But the reality is, if we learn to eat that vegetable, we'll learn to love it as we grow. I pray, Lord, that we would be a humble people, that you'd develop in us. And this is a tough prayer to pray because I know that it's going to mean hardship, suffering, Humility rarely comes in any other way. Does it come through self-fulfillment or happiness based on circumstance? Nine times out of ten, it's going to come through trial. Through not getting what we want right away. Through delayed, answered prayers. Through confusion and anxiety. through the suffering of sickness and illness. And yet, just as you went through all those things, you had your answers delayed in their answer, your, your prayers delayed in their answer. You suffered while you were here. You went without, you asked for things from your father, you didn't get them. And yet, because you highly exalted your Father above every name. Submitted to him fully, you then became exalted above every name. May we cling to the example and the promises and pursue you as we do. Help us not just respond in song, help us respond with our lives. In Christ's name do I pray, amen.